This is The Guardian. I'm Grace Dent and this is Comfort Eating from The Guardian. A podcast where we pay homage to the lesser celebrated foods in life. Because even as a restaurant critic, I believe the food that matters most is often that snack you cobble together when you're curled up on the sofa. Each week, I ask my guest to lift the lid on what comfort foods have seen them through their lives. Because you can tell a lot about a person from what they eat behind closed doors. Just a quick word, there will be some strong language in this episode. Hello, friends. You find me in my very peaceful garden, just under the flight path, I'm sure you can hear, pulling up weeds in my pathway. I'm quietly beside myself because another celebrity is about to ring my doorbell. She's the punchy, the funny, the mouthy, the absolutely brilliant. It's Kathy Burke. Okay, that's done. Let's go inside. Oh, the path looks so much better now. There is something so satisfying about a closed-ended task. The thing is, let me tell you, the more that you romp through a to-do list, the more other new fresh tasks just come into focus. A bit like my laptop, I think I've got 78 tabs open in my brain at all times. I have found one answer to this. It's when you're pulling up weeds, just be in the moment. Simply pulling up weeds. That's it. You don't need to worry right now about replanting the nasturtiums. Just pull up weeds. It's very peaceful. So my life lesson today is just have one tab open at a time, which for me is currently YouTube watching endless Kathy Burke clips. Kathy Burke is probably one of the UK's most loved and versatile actors, as well as a director and a writer. I think we all feel like we know her, don't we? But according to Kathy, she has never played a role based on her own life. In fact, if she ever gets a script where the characters remotely like her, she won't do it. It has been such a busy, varied career. So what I want to know is, who is the real Kathy Burke and what was she eating during all these different chapters? I better wash my hands, covered in soil. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Kathy Burke, welcome to Comfort Eater. Thank you very much, Grace Dent. Thank you for coming to my house. It's a beautiful house. I don't think you're feeling very well today and you've still come out of the house. I'm honoured. Well, I was more poorly yesterday and the day before. So I sort of feel today is the end of it. Man, you're a trooper. You're a trooper for coming <laughs> out. Look, I know two things 
for definite about you. One is that you're quite obsessed with death. You also have a very sweet tooth. Well, I do. That's only recently developed. I'm going to combine these two great loves of yours. If you were to choke to death on one sweet, (laughs) (laughs) what sweet would you choose the coroner to find in your windpipe? Well, see, it can't be a chocolate sweet because that would just melt. I don't know. I think a a Malteser could kill you. Do you think? Mm. I don't know. I think it would disintegrate pretty quickly, but not necessarily. It's like a minstrel. One of those could really get you. What were those things? Gobstoppers. And they seemed to get bigger and bigger. And then there were these huge ones, like the size of golf balls. Yeah, they can kill you. That's right. So I think one of them, because I'd like it to be quick. Yes. So it's just one, and then it's stuck, and then you're gone. I'm glad we've got some clarity on that. (laughs) Uh, Each week, my guest brings me their snack. It's underneath this slightly grubby tea towel. Every week I'm shamed by my own tea towels here. <laughs> Kathy Burke, please unveil. Talk me through it. Well, what we've actually got, which you are enjoying, uh-huh. is wholemeal toast mm. burnt with blueberry jam. Why burnt? It's just a little extra je ne sais quoi that I like. I don't burn the whole thing entirely, but if the crusts are black, then that's lovely. And the combination of the sweet jam on the charred bread. It's just something I, I've always really liked. How many times have you had the fire brigade to your house? <laughs> Not that often. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, you grew up in a council flat in Islington and it is just a stone's throw from that very flat that you live now. What was Islington like back then? Well, I mean, it always had its posh bits, for want of a better word. But the places I knew were the flats, the estates. And just like anywhere in the 70s, everything was quite empty. Yeah. Especially on a Sunday, you could do wheelies on your bike around there because there was, it was very rare that a car would be there on the road on a Sunday. Is, was it a, an estate or a block of flats that you? Yeah, I lived in uh, tenement flats, mm. Horton Mansions, they were called. Where did the Horton Mansions people, where, which cafe did they go to, which pub did they go to? My dad used to go to various different pubs. I think my dad just went to whichever pub he wasn't barred from, you know, because there was a lot of barring. Yeah. You're not coming back here again. And then, you know, a month later, you were allowed back in. You had two older brothers. Yeah. Yours as an Irish immigrant family. Mm -hmm. Tell me about your parents. Well, I didn't really know my mum. My mum died when I was 18 months. So I didn't really know her. But my dad, you know, my dad, Pat, he was a very troubled man. A lot of drinking. And, you know, he lost his wife very young. Mm. Suddenly got three kids to look after. So how old was he when he suddenly had three kids by himself? I don't know. He was younger than my mum. My mum was 38 when she died. 
I think my dad was probably about 34, mm. which now you think, blimey, that's a baby, yeah. you know? And drinking in the house all the time in front of you? and No, no, I don't remember there being actually drink in the house. Mm. It would be pubs and stuff he'd go to. And, you know, a lot of these guys, not just my dad, was sort of working in pretty grim conditions on building sites probably being verbally abused quite a lot because of being immigrants. Mm. I sort of look back, I don't blame him for needing a drink at the end of the day. Yeah. If he is out and he's gone to the pub and he's at the building site, who's who's feeding you? Who's looking after you? My big brother, John. My brother, Barry, sometimes. But it was my recollection, it was John that did everything. But I was also, I had, a godmother, I had a foster mum for a while. So, you know, there were there were people around. It wasn't just sort of us left on our own. What does John cook? Typical night you get in, what's John, what's on the, what's on the stove? I think sort of evening meals were like your bog standard, maybe a bit of egg on toast mm. or beans on toast. or. But the weekends you'd get, you know, your boiled bacon and cabbage and potatoes. Yeah. Or a stew, and I used to love the stew. It would be a steak and kidney stew. If money was tight, there'd be more kidney than steak. How did you, a kidney, I've never... Did you like a kidney when you were a kid? I, no, I hated kidney, but I still <laughs> ate it because you didn't turn your nose up at anything. You couldn't be fussy, yeah. you know, because you were just so sort of grateful for what was put in front of you. And, <laughs> and if you said, I don't like it, Somebody else had eaten it. It felt like John just just kind of stood up and took over when you... Yeah, when I mean, poor was... John. I mean, he had no choice. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Think about it now. He was 10, 11 when, when he lost his mum. Yeah. And yet just got on with it, you know? Bloody hell. Okay, and when he, when he wasn't there at all, if there, was, if there was no John, no one's cooking, how'd you eat then? Well, I would be on my own quite a lot as a kid because I used to bunk off quite a lot. What would I eat? Well, I remember I would just knock on other people's doors if I was hungry, neighbours that I knew, neighbours that I didn't know. And what would you say? I'd just say, hello, I'm Cathy, I live at number 106. Are you making any lunch or are you making any? Yeah. I remember eating raw sausage as a kid. I remember taking the skin off. Pretending in my head that it was pate. <laughs> well, I mean, look, it kind of is. It kind of is. I've had dozens of people on this podcast, and I think you're one of the few people that's properly experienced being hungry, though. Without a doubt. Without a doubt, yeah. I felt cared for. But it doesn't mean to say that there weren't times when I did feel hungry. Like going to bed... Yeah. With that. Yeah, going to bed feeling hungry. Uh, I don't want your listeners to think, oh my God, is she upset? I'm just really bunged up. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. But um, yeah, you know, because sometimes dad would go off, he'd he'd disappear, you know what I mean? If he was Mm. on a bit of a binge and whatever. And so there would be times when you'd just be like, oh God, hungry going to bed. But the next morning, I'd either be in school or I could go to a neighbour's or 
my auntie Joan or, you know, and get, get something to eat. Your older brothers, John and Barry, had to be pretty mature for their age. And life sounds like it was hard for you all. But what was sibling culture like? I do remember the first time I made my brothers laugh. And that was, I made a joke. It was uh, Blue Peter and John Noakes. And they were in Brazil. And he was there with the statue Christ the Redeemer, how magnificent this is. And then I just said in a John Noakesy type accent, and we're giving him a Blue Peter badge. <laughs> and my <laughs> brothers pissed themselves. They laughed so much. Yeah. And I was just, this is amazing. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It was like, and then of course I probably repeated it again and again. But yeah, I just remember that, getting that first big laugh. Introduce me to teenage Kathy Burke. Do you think we would have been mates at school? I'd have driven you mad. Why? Because I was really fucking annoying. Why? Because I was just an irritating little arsehole. I was just being told to shut up. I'll just shut up. You're getting on my nerves or... Yeah, I was just really irritating. What do you look like when you're a teen? Listen, you look back and it's like, oh my God, you were one of the cool kids, Kath. Because I did, I had got a skinhead haircut and I was into punk and two-tone. And I'd sort of put safety pins on my jacket. I was the right age for punk. I was 13 mm. in 77. Who shaved your hair off? I went to a barber. My dad went fucking mad. Yeah. My dad saw me out on the street on a Sunday when I was meant to be at my auntie Nelly's having my Sunday dinner. And when I got home, my brothers went, you're in trouble. He said, I saw you walking down the road with this shaved head like a fucking Egypt and all that. And, uh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to go out for a couple of weeks. So was it about the Sex Pistols at all? Was it the Sex Pistols that really excited you? It was the Sex Pistols. I do remember walking past Johnny Rotten. He was sat on the window ledge outside the Hope and Anchor one evening. And I remember seeing him and walking past and then thinking, what do I do? So I walked past again and then he could see I was this sort of plastic punk, as we used to be called. And he said, hello, little girl. That's what he said to me. And I went, fuck off, Johnny Rotten. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, yeah. He would have loved that. <laughs> but that's why I did it. You had uh, no mother figure around this time. It feels like your dad wasn't about. These are quite choppy teenage years. Who is the person that's giving you the guidance, do you think? Well, nobody really. I think I was just doing my own thing. And I was just waiting to get into the Anna Share Theatre. Yeah. You know, which was this famous place in this little run by this incredible woman, Anna Share that was like a drama club that you went to after school. But it was a waiting list. You didn't audition. So you just put your name on the list. And I put my name on the list when I was 13. Mm. And I finally got in, sort of 
close to my 16th birthday. I was one of those kids that, you know, put on plays. You know, those annoying fucking kids that, come on, I'm, I'm going to do a play. Oh, Jesus. So I was one of them arseholes. And, um, <laughs> but then we had, what are they called, supply teacher, English teacher, and started to do some drama with us, which had never happened before at my school, my secondary school. And I was just very good at it. Is, is getting to Anisha, when you get there, is it like arriving in some sort of paradise? You are suddenly surrounded by all these creative people. Yeah, it was amazing. Mm. It was just this room full of a mixture of kids, not just working class kids, middle class kids, quite rich kids as well, because that was Islington. And every background, every colour. And but then just her at the centre of it, Anna Share. Mm. You know, all this noise, you know, fifty to sixty kids in a class. And just the noise I remember was, was it was quite frightening walking in for the first time. I mean, it was a while before I was picked to stand up and do anything. And, and I remember thinking at the time, but the first thing she's taught us is to be a good audience. Mm. So you just got to fucking be patient. Yeah. And so I was happy to just sit and be quiet. I didn't care how long it took because I was terrified of being picked to stand up and do something. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you look back over your career, there's been three huge chapters. You've gone from actor to comedian to director. It begins in the film Scrubbers where you played an inmate at a Women's Young Offenders Institute. And perhaps your finest role to date playing Witness in Doorway <laughs> in, an, <laughs> in an award-winning Guardian TV advert. Yeah. Uh, you've come full circle, you're now here. Um, <laughs> what I want to know is how do you go from serious acting to comedy? Was comedy the plan? No, comedy was never the plan. It was just, I just wanted to, to act. I didn't care what it was, whether it was comedy or drama. You, you end up performing with some of the biggest names in the 80s and the 90s in British comedy, French and Saunders, Harry Enfield, Paul Whitehouse. One of my very favourite characters that you did was uh, Magda. 
in Abfab. Oh, Magda in Abfab. Magda in Abfab, just walking in. Mm. Small, meaningful role. You walk in and just deliver this blistering monologue, right? And then just fuck off. And then just go again. <laughs> it was great. Perry in Harry Enfield, mm-hmm. Kevin and Perry. Appointment viewing. Tens of millions of viewers. How are you scouted by these comedy legends? Looking back, I mean, it was sort of quite amazing, really. So I was in this film, Scrubbers. That was my first job. Mm. And in Scrubbers was an actress called Amanda Simons. Amanda was also a singer. Mm. So Amanda was working with the young ones. They went on tour. This was Rick Mail and all that gang. And then Amanda rings me up and says, you've got to come and see the young ones. Rick Mail wants to meet you. And I was like, what the fuck? This is incredible. And so I met Rick Mail. We all went to the comedy store. Rick Mail told the guy at the comedy store, give this young girl a lifelong membership for the comedy store. And it was like, oh, my God. And then, so I think that was the beginning of it. And that was certainly where Dawn and Jennifer knew me from. And then Simon and Roland from Raw Sex asked if I would join Raw Sex. They were kind of, for anyone that doesn't understand what raw sex is, they're like a joke cabaret band with mm. one man on the kind of... On the bongos. On the that bongos. Was Roland, yeah. And they, they're meant to be kind of a lounge band, yeah. but they're just, they always look like they've been sleeping in a van for That's days. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, raw <laughs> sex, big in the 80s. Big in the 80s. And so I came up with this character, Tina Bishop, who knows everything there is to know about darts. And she was from Keithley. The thing about Tina was that the whole reason she was part of raw sex was that she'd been impregnated by Roland, Dwayne. So, (laughs) but I remember um, talking about food (laughs) because I remember, right, she's got to have a craving. That was all I knew about pregnancy was that they get hot a lot and they have cravings. So there was this sort of grotesque bit, and totally my own doing. I'm sat on the stage, and while the boys are playing a number, I opened up on stage a cold tin of baked beans and then dipped a banana into it and would eat the beans and the banana straight out of the tin. Big laughs for that. Big, well, sort of grotesque, like (laughs) horror noises. Just People just couldn't believe I was doing it. I couldn't believe I was doing it. But then for years afterwards, I couldn't eat bananas or beans. Things are going incredibly well with your career. And then age 33, 1997, you're in the film Nil by Mouth. This is a devastating film. It's about a victim of domestic abuse. It's with Ray Winston. It won you the prestigious Cannes Award for Best Actress. Yeah. Tell me about food on the set of Nil by Mouth. Oh, caramba. (laughs) Well, the food was appalling. I mean, it was a really low-budget film. And we shot in the winter. It was cold. It was grim. I just remember it was snowing one day and the veggie choice was salad. And I just (laughs) was, what the fuck is going on? Just do a pot of soup. And I think Ray Winston got the ump and sent one of the runners out for fish and chips for everybody and I had some chips. But, um, I can yeah. imagine that's quite the sight to be old, Ray Winston, actually, with the hump. 
Yeah. I've seen him on screen do it, but I've never seen it in the flesh. Yeah, it's not as intimidating because he is as soft as shit, basically. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a teddy bear, you know. Uh, with Nil by Mouth, suddenly you've gone from comedy sketches to having Hollywood. Yeah, but you know what? It's so weird because everybody just remembers the television. Yeah. So it's like, oh, she went from comedy and then suddenly... But I was doing plays. Yeah. I was doing quite serious work. So I was sort of doing lots of stuff like that, plus my own writing. I did all that before I was even on the bloody telly with Paul and Harry. Well, I suppose then the question is that you've been doing all these different things, but then suddenly you've done this thing that you're now you are famous. You are recognisable. Was there ever a time where you acted like a complete star? Like I once heard that yeah. Adele, um, one of the first things she did in, when she just, I think she was still living in Brixton, got a champagne fridge. Oh, did she? God love her. <laughs> no, I never, I never did that. What was the thing I did? That I, no, not really. I didn't really change my life that much. I didn't want my life to change that much because all I ever wanted when I was a kid was basically my own fridge. I just wanted my own space and to do what I want and watch the telly when I want. And basically, that's it. I lived my life the way I dreamt of as a kid. I never dreamt of winning acting awards. My dreams never went that far. Mm. It was just I used to walk past the nice terrace houses in Highbury and think I'd love to live in one of these one day. You started cooking sausages though, didn't you? I did start cooking the sausage. <laughs> Very above my own station. <laughs> did you ever have that? Um, <laughs> did you ever have that period when you were acting? Did you go out and live in America? Did you spend time in Hollywood? Or No, no. I mean, the opportunity was there. But... Yeah, a mate of mine at the time called me, oh, she's such a reluctant movie star. And that was it. I was quite reluctant about it all. And I was, because I'd always directed, even though it was fringe, it wasn't like big flash things, but I loved that more, you see. Why does your friend say that you're so reluctant? You're the reluctant film star. Because when everything was being offered to me. Yeah. And it was, and, and there's that thing that happens when you win a big award, like the Cannes Award or an Oscar or whatever, it's sort of then like, it certainly was back then. It's like, oh, well, now that's what you do. Now you've got to a place that everyone wants to get to as mm -hmm. an actor. So you've got there. So now you have to maintain it. Oh, right. You're doing this film in Ireland. Great. Let's see if we can get you an Oscar nomination for supporting actor. And I'm like, hang on a minute. I don't want a fucking Oscar nomination. Why well, not? Because I didn't want to go to fucking America and haul myself around, sell yeah. myself to get a fucking Oscar. Because that's yeah. what you have to do. And it's like, so I've got to waste six weeks of my life when I could be directing a play in Plymouth. I've got to go over there and fucking haul myself about just to get an Oscar. I'm not interested. Like... What, go to parties and wear the, wear the nice dresses? You have to do the and, Like go you, for dinner with yeah, folk. You, you sort of have to. You sort of have to. And, and that's fine. Other people love it. It's, and it's a wonderful thing. I love it when it happens for my friends. There's no one more happy than me. 
but I just wasn't bothered about it. It's so weird for me. I just didn't want it. Maybe I was shy of the whole thing. When something's in the diary, like mm. I'm talking about back then, when something would be in the diary and they'd say, so-and-so film studio's bosses are going to be in town and they're all having drinks at so-and-so in Old Compton Street oh, yeah. and it would be really good for you <laughs> if you just swung by, swung, yeah. that's always the word, swung by. If that's in the diary, what are you dreading? Not being able to get pissed and be myself and have a laugh. It's also the reason I've never run a theatre because, you know, um, I've been asked to be the artistic director of certain theatres over the years. And I never wanted to do it because there's part of you that has to beg for money, basically. So you have to sort of uh, put on the nice jacket, have the wine and be very pleasant to people who might be giving money to the theatre. Mm. It's just not in me. When you were a little girl, you'd have went and just knocked on people's doors and said, give us the money for the theatre. That's true. But um, I just didn't fancy it. I just was only interested in being in a rehearsal room. coming up to the part of your life you right now now people at home might have seen you in Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy you were in uh, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's Crashing is that what you like to do though because it's uh, acting has taken a real backseat and you go over and you start directing I think that surprised a lot of people yeah but it didn't surprise the people that know me yeah it sort of surprised people who didn't know me was there a specific job that you just come back and shut the door one night and went, right, literally? There was a sort no. of row of them. Okay. There was a sort of job after job that was a bit, I'm not liking this. I'm not feeling it. I don't like the way he works. It's nearly always a he. I just don't like the hanging around. I don't like the sitting around doing nothing. I like having to use my brain all day. I like being exhausted at the end of the day from work I don't like being knackered from boredom so I sort of took what I didn't like and made sure that as a director I didn't do any of what I didn't like it's really weird because my directing work the public they don't know about it they're not interested theatre fuck off but it's everything to me I went to a party recently my mates Tilly and Aid had their 40th anniversary so there was a lot of mates from the past and there was a, a few mates that I had worked with there was my mate had done a play with me and the one thing I I thought that's what makes me proud is that they all said it's still after ever many years still the, my favorite job I've ever worked on yeah and that is what makes me proud nobody sees that there's nothing on my mantelpiece about that but that for me is everything You are um, very honest and very upfront about your health. Um, you've been very honest about menopause. Yeah. And I've, I've been trying to be more honest in public about it. I find the whole aging thing a wild journey that uh -huh. I'm on. I like it when upfront women talk about menopause because our grandmothers just wouldn't have. 
Yeah. You absolutely wouldn't have. The thing that I always want to talk about is the level of kind of quiet insanity that started to come over me at about the age of 46. Well, it affected me quite badly, actually, because I, I couldn't get any help. Because I'm on, I'm on other medication for things, I couldn't have HRT. So, yeah, so basically I just had to grin and bear it. Holy God. And it wasn't great. It was only five years ago. But the way things have changed <clears throat> since then, it's been amazing. People do talk about it more now. So it was getting to a point because I couldn't work. I couldn't fucking even go for walks. I was like that for about three years. Yeah. And it was horrendous. And I just sort of hid myself away. And then I was just on the point of, fuck it, I'm going to have to pay to have a hysterectomy because I've got to stop this because this is, I, I've got no life. And then God, it yeah. just stopped. And it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Growing up, we're taught, once that stops for a woman, that's it. You're not really a woman anymore. You're a sort of dry husk. You're this, you're that. Of course, we were all fed a load of bollocks That's by men. why we don't talk about it. That's because it, it's because like, it's still that old it's like attitude. It's like waving you off to pasture. Yeah. Off you go now. But what's <laughs> wonderful now is people realise, women realise that is not the case. And uh, it's like people get a new lease of life once they've come through the other side of the menopause. I was just like, thank fuck, now I can start living again. Menopause completely changed your diet too, I've heard. Um, it's changed. Look, look I, I was saying this yesterday to my team. I didn't think that I had all my life didn't have a sweet tooth until I hit this stage in my life. I could eat three times a day just sponge pudding and custard. I wouldn't, I don't need any other food. Yeah. You know, it's just, I just want to eat. I could just eat a bar of chocolate a day, that'd be it. Honestly, yeah. that's where I am. Yeah, it's so strange because I was never really a, a sweet tooth person. But then, yeah, when I got, got to my 50s, it was suddenly, I was adding biscuits to the shopping list. I was like, Biscuits? I don't really buy biscuits. For women listening to this, which biscuit is the sign that the menopause is coming? Is it a custard cream? Well, do you know what? I quite like posh biscuits. I like an oaty, fruity biscuit. Yeah. I like a ginger nut. Yeah. Cakes. I'll tell you what kicked it off as well as all these fucking patisseries opening up everywhere. Yeah. Coffee yeah, shops. Yeah. I think that's the biggest con of the 21st century is coffee. Okay. What, like just walking in and getting charged £4.95 for a... I you fucking arseholes. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? What, <laughs> what a con. I've heard that on your 40th birthday, though, you said it was a cause for celebration. Why was that? Yeah. I mean, I've never really worried about being older or getting old i mean now i'm 60 this year and you're talking to me about my 40th i'm like i was a baby yeah my 40th i think anybody i say anybody under the age of 55 looks about 12 to me now it's weird because i am coming up for 60 this year and it is the first one 
where I, because I didn't feel like that when I was coming up for 50. It was like, mm. I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still enjoying my life the way I always have done. It's not stopping me doing anything I want to do. But there's something about the 60. Go on, what is it? I think it is, this is the beginning of the end because I don't really want to live beyond early 70s, really, at a push. So that basically means if it goes the way I want it to go, I've only got about 10 years left. I think that in this day and age, you could well have another 40 years left. But would you want to? I don't want to. None of us have that choice. Well, we might do, you know, assisted dying and stuff. This is is a hell of a way to break it to your friends that you're going to be going to Dignitas. (laughs) I think my my friends are well aware of my... uh, Thoughts on life and yeah. death. Where do you stand on birthday cake? So whenever a cake has been presented to me, I've either stuck my face in it or I've sat on it. <laughs> so there's just a little warning if anyone's thinking of, <laughs> oh, I'm going to <laughs> get the poshest, most expensive cake. It will either just have my face in it or my ass. You you haven't sat on the cake. Yeah, I sat on my 50th <laughs> cake that was presented to me. And the 40th, yeah, I remember that was presented to me and I just put my face in it. You um you spoke you spoke a little bit at the beginning about your dad and your relationship with him when you were young and then there's a a part later on in your life when it feels like you connected back with him. Sort of. Well, I just got to know him. Because yeah. he was sober and then he enjoyed his life. He started traveling, he sort of traveled a bit around Europe and stuff. But then sadly, he got poorly and, and then he was, he passed away at the age of 63. Were you there with him through that? As much as I could be, as much as I was mentally capable of being there for him. But I was, I was there when he died because he passed away. It was it was five to five, because I remember turning to my brother and saying crackerjack, because that was how I remembered it was five. Because when we were kids, crackerjack yeah. was it was five to five. It's Friday. Yeah. It's crackerjack. Yeah. So he passed away at five to five, and I said, "Oh, crackerjack." But yeah, I went back home, went back to my flat, and this was in '94, so it was very rare that there were late night shops or anything like that. But suddenly at about 10 o'clock at night, or it might have even been later, the middle of the morn maybe, but I really wanted a fried egg sandwich. It was just what I wanted. and I didn't have any eggs in, I didn't have any bread in. So I remember getting a minicab to take me up to this shop on Upper Street. And I went and got some bread and some eggs and came home and made a fried egg sandwich. And yeah... It's so strange, isn't it? I don't remember eating fried egg sandwiches with my dad. Do you know what I mean? But that was what the body craved. Um, We are coming to the end of this interview. The thing is, you've always been uncompromising in being a hundred percent Kathy Burke have always seemed to me like someone uh you're just not scared of the backlash 
And loads of people are driven by fear, right? They're scared of what people will say and whether that'll lead to the money drying up or whatever it is, being ostracized. You're not you're not driven by fear. What what does drive you in life? Oh gosh. Mm. I don't know. Because you're so driven. You Am know? I? Yes. I, I I always think of myself as being quite lazy. I don't know what drives I, me. I think you might have answered the question before. Yeah. When you said something that really struck me, you said, I like to go to bed every night exhausted mm. by by thinking almost. Yeah, that's lovely. By learning. By learning. And because I don't go out much, I don't like parties anymore. I certainly don't go to premieres or press nights or anything like that. So I've not met a lot of the new generation of comics and but now I'm doing the podcast. Like I met Rob Rob Beckett for the first time last week. That was great. You know. <laughs> it's like, oh, Jamie Demetrio, you know. Yeah. You're getting to meet all these people. And they're coming on the podcast, they tell me, because they watched me when they were kids. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But then that's my final question. How does it feel to have made so many of us happy? It feels blooming marvellous. It feels very nice, actually. And uh, I'm glad I was a small part of that gang, that lovely gang. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. I'm a bit I embarrassed. Think... Why? Um, you are embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah. Stop looking at me. <laughs> Cassie Burke, it has been an absolute bloody honour. Thank you so much for competing with me. Thank you very much, Grace. It's been beautiful. Thank you, darling. Thank you. I'll stop looking at you now. This episode of Comfort Eating was produced by Tom Glasser. The executive producer is Lucy Greenwell. The music was written by Axel Cacoutier. Visuals by Sophie Harrow. Mixing and sound design by Solomon King. If you love this podcast, then you'll love my book, Comfort Eating. It's a slice of joy sprinkled with nostalgia about my family, stories of the making of this podcast and recipes which will leave you, well, frankly bewildered. Finally, go on, leave us a review and you can follow or subscribe so that you never miss an episode. This is The Guardian. The Guardian.